Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Hancock Whitney. Hancock Whitney is here for families, here for businesses, here for communities during this challenging time. Visit HancockWhitney.com slash COVID-19 for the latest. And by... Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. From our socially distanced virtual lunch table in Lafayette, we're out to lunch with Christian Mader, publisher and editor of The Current. It's business Acadiana style. Welcome to Out to Lunch. I'm Christian Mader. You know, a concept has become ingrained in the business world when it gets an acronym or a shorthand. Um, MVP, Minimum Viable Product, CSR, Corporate Social Responsibility, and now DEI, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. Emphasizing diversity is nothing new. Business leaders, especially in corporate America, have embraced the idea that drawing from a wider pool of talent and perspective can make their companies better. The other two components, equity and inclusion, are somewhat newer considerations in boardrooms. Equity, in this case, meaning the distribution of stake, power, and opportunity, and inclusion, meaning a proper seat at the table. They have become more common in hiring and workforce development in the last few years, but the urgency of the issue exploded in 2020, particularly around racial justice. Put simply, it's not just a moral imperative anymore. Companies can't afford to be toxic, and changing can require facing down unvarnished truths and having some uncomfortable conversations. Uncomfortable conversations are especially for my guest, Elsa Dimitriotis. Her company, Conversation Starters, specializes in diversity and facilitation training, and they help companies take a hard look at how they do business and whether their practices make room for everyone. Uh, Conversation Starters launched in 2016, uh, inspired by the unrest caused by the police killing of Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge. And data from their work uh, with local and national clients shows substantial improvement in workplace perceptions of leadership diversity, belonging, and respect. In short, the method seems to work. Uh, Elsa, thanks for joining me on Out to Lunch Acadiana. Thank you for having me. Uh, data is where my next guest got her start. Tanisia Mallory heads the Office for Campus Diversity at UL Lafayette, but she began her career in mathematics, getting a PhD in applied and computational mathematics from Princeton. Uh, since returning to Lafayette, she spearheaded UL's strategic inclusion plan and has worked to help the school identify uh, faculty members from underrepresented communities. Uh, her leadership has put UL on the map as one of American higher ed's DEI frontrunners uh, and recently helped the school become one of only 19 U.S. universities to participate in Aspire, a program. Um, for Faculty Inclusion in Science, Technology, Engineering, and Math, launched by the National Science Foundation. Tanisia Mallory, thanks for joining me on Out to Lunch Acadiana. Thanks for having me. So, Elsa, I want to start with you. Uh, and actually, I want to kind of talk the business component of what you all do, right? Um, I understand, of course, this is mission-oriented, but this is a for-profit venture, right? Like, you guys are, are out to, to make money, to put it crassly. But your line of work is the kind of scrutiny that sometimes companies want to avoid, right? So I, I'm kind of curious about what the business development process looks like for a consulting firm like Conversation Starters. Right. So we took a model um, that we did in a community and um, began extrapolating it um, so that we could apply it to companies. And I think that that grassroots approach made it for lack of a better word, approachable to companies. And so, um, you know, we very much um, meet companies where they are. We talk to them about um, what their current situation is. We encourage them to participate um, with us on a company-wide survey. Um, we have a statistician, Dr. Danielle Fastering, who is um, on staff with us. And she um, collects information from through an anonymous survey um, from employees 
um, employees and leadership as to how they feel with regard to belonging, um, uh, their, their voice, whether they have opportunities for growth, um, how they self-assess their uh, cultural competency, um, where they see opportunities for growth for their company. And I think having an external company come in and, um, and gather that data in a, play, in a space where they can be very forthright and honest um, lets us um, take that information, analyze it, and then present it back to the company with suggested next steps. And sometimes that steps, um, those steps include things like our Catalyst Dinner Program, which was similar to the Longest Table uh, community uh, um, project that we did in 2019. Um, sometimes that is um, a series of conversations about current events so that there's an environment for, um, for employees to learn how to grow the muscle of having uncomfortable conversations. Um, but all of the different recommendations that we make um, as, in the, at the end of the day, come back to fostering authentic relationships um, and transparent dialogue uh, about difficult topics, and then moving people along what we say is a continuum of uninformed to informed, informed to concerned, and concerned to active. And so wherever people fall on that continuum, we're, we're working to move them along that to the next step. And so, um, and so we, we recommend a number of interventions and, and offer those, um, those services. So, so speaking of continuums, I mean, my impression, um, Tanisia, is higher ed maybe in theory has been kind of further along uh, that continuum than the rest of, let's say, where people work. Um, you know, when I was in college, diversity was a big selling point. It was a reason why you might choose College A over College B. Um, but I was a little surprised to learn, right, that um, 9% of STEM professorships, meaning, you know, professorships in science, uh, technology, engineering, and math, are, are, are in U.S. colleges are for what you might call underrepresented groups. So, so I find that a bit surprising. Like, how is it that we've spent so much time, right, decades, right, of diversing our student body, and yet that has not sort of almost by process yielded a more diverse faculty or staff at the university system. Yeah, that's a great question. I think there are a lot of systemic inequities in our faculty hiring, recruitment, retention, development efforts, and even the way that we evaluate faculty that have um, really kept a lot of underrepresented folks out of faculty ranks. And then when they get there, they aren't as nurtured and cultivated and developed in a way that really celebrates who they are and what their contributions are to the academic experience. You know, academia has a long history and a long tradition. Uh, and a lot of the things that we do are rooted in a hierarchy of uh, white heterosexual male <laughs> power and authority. And so now we're getting to a place and, and the Aspire Alliance work that we're undertaking at the university is really challenging us to take a really close look at our policies and practices when it comes to the recruitment, the hiring, the professional development of our faculty to make sure that we're creating an environment where underrepresented faculty can thrive. I mean, that comes in a lot of different ways. The ways that we go out and recruit faculty, are we being active in the recruitment? Or are we just sitting back and just hoping that they will come knock at our door? Are we, you know, once they do arrive at the university, are we connecting them to a community of scholars so that they can have collaborators built in that they can work with, partner with, do uh, write research projects with? Um, and, and really, are we evaluating them when it comes to promotion and tenure? Are we looking at their scholarship? 
Are we looking at the types, the, the ways that underrepresented scholars are expressing their, their scholarly achievements? You know, these days we see a lot of um, public intellectualism. Are we celebrating that? Um, are we acknowledging community-informed research? Are we uh, recognizing faculty who serve as outstanding mentors to our underrepresented students? Um, so it, it, it challenges us to rethink the notion of what it means to be a faculty member um, and what type of skills and assets that we are celebrating and, and providing uh, resources for at our institutions. So it strikes me too that, that, you know, kind of thinking about this like college to workplace pipeline, which, you know, let's, let's be honest, I mean, that's only going to cover one segment of the workplace, although I suppose it's bigger now than it might have been 50 years ago. But it seems like the same question could be issued at sort of like who shows up for jobs, right? Like this idea that if we've, as a society, right, at least on paper have been um, prioritizing diversity or at least acknowledging that it's something we ought to think about. Um, but yet, you know, you know, 21st century here, we're still reeling with these issues. I mean, why is it that like that has not actually translated right into workplaces that uh, maybe for lack of a better word, are sort of more naturally diverse, uh, equitable and inclusive? Yeah, you know, I think we, we really want to create an environment where um, our workplaces are actively involved in the, the pipeline development process. I mean, that goes into, I think about in higher education, we think about pipeline programs and K through 12 systems, right? And we talked about briefly about the STEM pipeline. Are we developing programs with our K through 12 system that exposes young students to opportunities and careers in STEM? Are we talking about uh, dismantling biases that uh, provide pathways for students and, and takes kids off those pathways towards STEM careers because we don't traditionally see those types of faces in those jobs. Um, and so it really does take some intentional development, uh, community building and partnerships to, to make that work. So Elsa, I kind of want to bring you in here because, you know, something I'm thinking about is, you know, sometimes you got to have to know you have a problem to solve it. I mean, and so do, do you find that the companies that you work with, I mean, are, are they coming to you in a position where something's happened at work and, I don't want to call it crisis intervention, but they're really having to address a problem that has been brought to them, or are they typically coming in trying to be proactive? I mean, what's the typical posture, right, um, from, from an employer and how they're approaching a company like yours? I think that in what we've seen in the last couple of years is that there's been um, a, a national movement toward, like you were in, in your intro talking about DEI, right? And then, and something I wanted to say is that a lot of people use those words and don't exactly understand what those words mean, including sometimes people who are in that space or are trying to um, move those efforts along in the workplace. So oftentimes we're brought in because they know they should be doing something, but they're not entirely sure what those things might look like. You know, they want to uncover their perceptions um, may be different than what we find out the perception at large is at the workplace. And so, um, so I would say that um, they are being proactive, but just in so far as saying, we know we need this, we identify that um, we're a predominantly white male heterosexual company, and um, we're not hearing all the voices, but we're not entirely sure how to um, how to uh, uh, work on that pipeline. And um, what we've been really excited about are those companies that are interested, you know, once, once we're um, moving along uh, with those companies with regard to their current employers, um, the ones that are really excited about what do they do to get that pipeline um, producing more perspective um, 
employers it, for the future. And, and that, those are the ones that we're really excited about, the ones that want to go into um, middle schools and high schools and, and introduce the work that they do. And, and like Tanisia said, break down those, those biases that, um, that we have as to who does what jobs. You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Christian Mader. I'm talking with Elsa Dimitriadis of Conversation Starters and Tanisia Mallory of UL's Office for Campus Diversity. Tanisia, do you feel like we're making progress on this? I mean, since we've been sort of more active, let's say, I mean, uh, you talk about trying to attack these barriers, about sort of identifying and dealing with unconscious biases that, that you know, can put up, as you, as you say, systemic roadblocks. I mean, are we starting to thaw away at, at that ice or, or, I mean, give, give us a sense of what that scale is yeah, like. Yeah, I do think we're making progress and, and I'm going to put on my mathematician hat for a little while. I won't get too deep into it, but, um, you know, I spent some time working at the Census Bureau uh, for, for a few years. And one of the things that we used to talk about a lot at Census was population projections. And one of the things that the Census Bureau talks a lot about is the uh, majority minority tipping point. We're going to get to a point around 2043 where the majority of Americans will be non-white. Um, and what will that look like? And we already have, have reached that tipping point when it comes to the college age, traditionally college age student population and younger, which is why you, you made this point earlier that, you know, colleges are maybe on the forefront of these efforts. It's because our clientele, if you will, our student bodies are the most diverse uh, population in our uh, communities. Um, but to your point about, you know, are we making progress? I think the imperative is there. Uh, the diversity is increasing. I will say that last summer, one of the things that I was talking a lot about on campus is that, you know, it felt different. Something about the Black Lives Matter movement felt different. The, the, the groundswell of support about, uh, around um, non-Black people attending rallies and demonstrations and marches across the country was something to see. You saw a lot of companies that had never taken a stand around DEI issues that were making statements that were doing at least something small when it comes to you know, expressing solidarity with the Black community. I do feel like we are reaching some sort of tipping point, if you will, in terms of buy-in. There has to be people of power that have to latch on to this movement. It can't be the disenfranchised, minoritized, underrepresented folks that are trying to um, change society because they're not in the positions to make those ultimate changes. But I do think that we are in a place now, and I'm sure Elsa has seen it with, with her work in terms of this increased interest of you know, what can we do as organizations, as institutions, and as systems to make the changes that are necessary to sustain us moving forward to the point where we are going to see in our, in our boardrooms and in our companies and in our schools an increasingly diverse population. Yeah, so I, um, I completely agree with Tanisia. I will say that leadership um, at companies is are, are for the most part extremely interested in um, ways that they can um, systemically change uh, their companies to increase DEI efforts. Um, I will say also though um, that I would be remiss if I didn't 
mentioned that we're seeing more of a backlash in the staff itself, though, a polarization that we haven't seen. Um, there's a lot of talk about um, where has meritocracy gone, as though meritocracy ever was a thing. Um, and a lot of the false narratives uh, that we're hearing um, from some media outlets um, are, are, are coming out in the open responses that we're getting from, from staff. You know, um, I, I think that something that is gonna have to happen is sort of a meeting of, you know, there's two philosophies in, in DEI work. There's the idea that you don't change minds, you change hearts, right? And that works, but it's really slow. And then there's the other philosophy where you move traffic cones and it doesn't mean that everybody gets a new, uh, a, like a one-on-one -on -one driving class. And some people are mad about the no, new way they have to drive, but the traffic, cones are there and eventually people get used to them. And so there's really gonna have to be sort of a meeting of those two approaches where the systems have to change, but we also need to be doing the work so that um, it reduces that backlash that we're seeing um, in in our responses from, from membership at large. So, I mean, uh, and maybe I'm being presumptive here, but it sounds like when you're talking about polarization, I mean, there's a reality that this line of work and the, these concepts, right, do fall along often or people's views of them and fall along political lines, right? Like you can kind of, I'm sure there's some nuance there, but there, there tends to be sort of a view, well, this is a left-leaning position on this, this is a right-leaning position on that. And, and, you know, Lafayette, you guys are both in Lafayette. It's a pretty conservative place. Have you found that to be particularly challenging? I mean, I hate to oversimplify, but we only have a 25-minute program here. Um, you know, the, the idea being that like, yeah, there, there's some resistance uh, to the concepts that you're pushing. Um, I mean, how do you even begin to sort of... Um, to, to manage that when you would do encounter that somebody who says like, look, I reject the premise of what you're telling me that, that there's a systemic problem with racism, that there isn't, um, that there never was a meritocracy. I mean, somebody would, I think very much push back at that. So we do a lot of education pieces. Um, I, I think that although there are many people we've learned in the last couple of years that will argue with data, um, we try to use data first, right? Um, the, the things that are, that are least arguable. Um, and then I would also say that uh, we're seeing an increase of the relationship between political parties and uh, and the approach to DEI. And so what we really try to do is, you know, when we ask people like, what are you worried about? What keeps you from engaging? It always comes back to fear. It might be worded in a different way, but it's always fear. I'm afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing. I'm afraid that I'm going to be canceled, quote unquote. I'm afraid that um, I'm not going to move up in my career because, um, you know, because of DEI efforts, I'm not going to be considered, right? Like all of those things, it comes back to fear. So how can we have those conversations in a space where those fears can be addressed? because it's a lot easier to deal with fear than it is to deal with anger or or hate or any of those other things that come up. And so, um, you know, it, 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 like you said, in, in short, um, the, the two things that, that we're, we're really trying to do is start with education and address fear. So, so Tanisha, I kind of want to ask you to put your data hat back on here. I mean, Elsa kind of referred to like, look, we try to make this as fact-based as we can. And, you know, what are the sort of the major data points that you would bring to bear 
to try and get everybody sort of singing from the same sheet. Yeah. Of music. Well, I, I think Elsa is spot on with the education piece. And, and as a university, you know, that is our core mission to educate our students. Uh, and so, you know, the idea around diversity, equity, and inclusion, it is a core value of our systems and our institutions. It's a core value, of, certainly, of the university in that, you know, we value diverse perspectives. It's not to say that we, that one perspective is any better than the other or uh, any more right than the other. Um, it is to say that we value spaces where all perspectives are represented, are valued, are expressed. Um, are considered valid. Um, and so, so I just wanted to, to touch on that because I think that's a really important distinction when it, when it comes to the politicizing of these issues. Uh, but, but back to the data question, and anytime you ask me to bring data into the conversation, I will happily do that. Uh, but you know, I think there's, there's a lot of, when it comes to convincing those who are really stuck in this idea that, you know, uh, to Elsa's point, that I'm gonna lose out if, if someone else gets more access, more opportunity, more rights, <laughs> um, then that means that I'm losing access and opportunity and rights. And that is not the case. It is not a zero sum game. It is not a place where, you know, there's a very limited set of resources and we're all fighting for them. The, the, the fact of the matter is that when everybody succeeds, we all do better. Um, there's a commerce-based argument for this. There's a business case for the, the value and the benefits of DEI work. You know, there, there's a lot of people in this community who don't uh, go to certain companies because they feel that those companies are not inclusive. Um, they, they don't patronize certain businesses um, and they don't support certain causes because of their lack of inclusion. And I think if, if there was a greater recognition of the power and the profitability of having an inclusive mindset in the workplace, I think that could go a long way in terms of convincing those who are on the fence when it comes to these issues. So Elsa, you, you said that it was easier, uh, and correct my paraphrase, please, but, but that it was easier sort of deal with, you know, maybe fear as opposed to anger or, or hatred. I mean, so um, it was kind of an, I think an interesting thought because it all seems pretty difficult to deal with, quite frankly. So, so how does, you know, how do, how do you engage at the level of fear? If somebody's like, look, I mean, I think let's just kind of put our hats on and say, if a person's approaching this because they legitimately think that they're going to lose their livelihoods or they're going to lose opportunities, I mean, like, that's a tough thing. It's something, that's, something that somebody will feel viscerally. So how do you broach that conversation with them? So we create spaces where those conversations can happen so that we can directly say things like, um, I'm sensing that you're fearful. Is that right? You know, and let people start to express those thoughts where fear is just that, I mean, uh, anger is just that surface thing that you're seeing, right? They also say that um, that sarcasm is, is anger dressed up like a clown, right? We, like we use a lot of these trappings of emotion where fear is really that underlying thing. But we as humans, we're not comfortable just calling it out and saying, hey, I'm sensing that you're worried about something. What are you worried about? And that, that vulnerability really allows people in the room to rise to the occasion and have those conversations like Tanisia was saying about like, it's not pie, right? We're not going to run out of enough pieces of pie. Like, what can we do together that we can celebrate our differences and, and lift everyone up? But until people can really like hone in on what is driving their resistance to diversity and inclusion and equity efforts, we can't move forward. Um, 
And then also it's an opportunity, you know, we in the DEI world, there's a lot of emphasis on implicit bias. We really focus on confirmation bias, which is, you know, we all have implicit bias, right? It's kind of how we've survived as, as humans on the planet. Um, and, and, but what do you keep pouring into yourself that's doing nothing but confirming what you are, what your biases are already telling you? Are you doing anything that challenges those thoughts? So what we're doing is creating spaces where we can be vulnerable with one another, but also illuminate some perspectives that are intentionally confronting what, um, the, what you are, what your worldview already is. Hmm. So uh, the resistance being what it is, right. And, and, and to some extent, like trying to convince people like this isn't pie, <laughs> um, zero sum games, I think is something we all like, like whether you're talking about um, economic opportunity or whatever, I mean, people, I think generally intuit that the world uh, is full of scarce resources. And so we're all just trying to get ours. Right. Um, but, but it does strike me, right, that, 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 that something you mentioned earlier, like a person might come to this just sort of intuiting that, like, if I do the wrong thing, I'm going to lose out. And there's a sense that, like, a person can't just make a mistake anymore. They're going to be, it could be fatal, right? I mean, is that, I guess I'm, a lot of this has me wondering to what extent is that a perception that's been um, stoked, let's say, by the media? You mentioned, like, media perceptions. Or, or do people have an honest or authentic reason to feel that way about approaching an issue like this. Tanisha, I'd kind of like to, to hear your yeah, response I think, to that. I think this reminds me of Black Tuesday. If y'all remember last summer uh, when there was a lot of uproar and attention around George Floyd and a lot of attention around Black Lives Matter, a lot of support for the Black community. And there was a day of Black Tuesday where everyone on social media went Black. And the goal was to amplify the voices of, of the Black community and Black issues. Um, and there was a, there's a lot of discernment within the Black community about, you know, companies who had never taken a stand around DEI issues, had never lived up to the promise of DEI, who went Black on Black Tuesday, on Black Tuesday, and then maybe came out a few days later and said, "Oh, we have, we are committed to DEI. We are committed to working with you." And it was like, you know, the community could see right through it. Um, and so it's all about aligning your actions with your values. If you're not doing that, then there's going to be some very clear consequences. I mean, if you are going to stand up there and say that we are committed to these issues, then you should be able to back that up with some actions that you have been taking. Now, maybe you had not up until last summer, maybe you had not invested a lot of effort in these areas. But that's a, I mean, this, this, this battle is far from over. And so that's just a starting point. That's an opportunity to say, how can we start to do better? But what does that look like? That looks like taking action. That looks like, you know, engaging people like Elsa in conversation about, you know, what does it take to move our organization forward and to really commit to this in a substantial way. I think that's what it takes to not be canceled, right? Those who are fearful of, oh, I'm gonna say the wrong thing and then, then I'll be written off forever. Well, you know, there's, there's not that degree of, of quick ca cancellation if an organization is really authentic about their desire to change. And I think having that authenticity and that commitment to those values is, is really what's important. It's really humbling, you know, to think that in a lot of ways we're, we're still just sort of starting 
this conversation, even given the work that that's been around on these issues, maybe in the latter half of the 20th century, et cetera. And, and obviously you guys are at the forefront of, of making that happen right now here locally. And so really appreciate you um, spending some time with me to talk about it here on Out to Lunch Acadiana. So Elson Tunisia, it was great having you on the show. Uh, and thanks for coming on Out to Lunch. Thank you. Thank you. The guests on Out to Lunch Acadiana today have been Elsa Dimitriadis of Conversation Starters and Tanisia Mallory of UL's Office for Campus Diversity. We edited this show to fit into the time slot here on KRBS, and you can hear our unedited conversation and find out more about Elsa and Tanisia and what they do by listening to the Out to Lunch Acadiana podcast, which you can find anywhere you get podcasts and on our website, itsacadiana.com. If you want to know what we look like, you can find photos from this show on itsacadiana.com and on our social media. These photos were taken by Jill LaFleur, and you can find more of her work at LaFleurphoto.com. One of these days, we'll get back to hosting Out to Lunch Acadiana face-to-plate at the French Press in downtown Lafayette. Until then, you can go to the French Press yourself for breakfast or lunch or order it for delivery. Out to Lunch Acadiana is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsacadiana.com and KRVS 88.7 FM. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Merle. Our associate producers are Molly Richard and Jan Risher. Our researcher is Maggie Mendel. I'm Christian Mader. I'm editor of The Current, Lafayette's nonprofit source for local news. And to find out more what matters in Lafayette, head over to thecurrentla.com and sign up for our newsletter. Till then, I'll see you here again next time around our virtual lunch table for more business Acadiana style on Out to Lunch Acadiana. Bye-bye. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones-Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com and by Hancock Whitney. Hancock Whitney is here for families, here for businesses, here for communities during this challenging time. Visit HancockWhitney.com slash COVID-19 for the latest. And by... Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. Mitchell Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can hear Mitchell's music anywhere great jazz is sold or streamed and at MitchellForeman.com.